0: Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley. thank you so much for joining us. In this episode, some embarrassing communication among Fox News stars about the 2020 election and whether it was stolen. Democrats and Republicans have sharply differing views on how to fix Social Security and Medicare. What can U.S. youth learn from an insurgent candidacy in Nigeria that's drawn massive support from young people? And could an indictment of Donald Trump actually be in the cards in the near future? Let's roll. You may remember that the primary media outlet pushing the notion that Donald Trump actually won the 2020 election was Fox News. Its talk show hosts went full tilt in backing Trump's assertion that the election was somehow fixed in favor of Joe Biden and stolen from him. A good part of that overall argument centered around Dominion voting systems who in turn has sued Fox News and several other outlets that pushed the notion that Dominion's voting machines were rigged. In a series of legal findings, Dominion has managed to get a hold of several texts and other messages among Fox Star broadcasters and other company executives. It's not pretty. Witness this exchange between Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram on November 18, 2020, a couple of weeks after the election. Carlson, quote, Sidney Powell is lying, by the way. I caught her. It's insane. Ingram, quote, Sidney is a complete nut. No one will work with her. Ditto with Rudy. That would be Rudy Giuliani. This between two hosts who then proceeded to turn around and promote the vote fraud theories espoused by both Powell and Giuliani. The skepticism even went to the top of the company. Rupert Murdoch, chair of the Fox Corporation, expressed his doubts about the Trump narrative. You may ask yourself, what would prompt people who say these kinds of things in private to say something different in public? The answer is contained in Fox's decision on election night to call the race in Arizona for Joe Biden. Not only was the Trump campaign furious, but Fox viewers were as well. Fox was the first network to call Arizona, and that pretty much clinched the election for guess who? Joe Biden. The result was that Fox News ratings plummeted. It was then that its biggest personalities began to do a 180 and start to follow the Trump line that the election had been stolen. And who did they blame? Dominion voting systems. Many of their claims were downright outlandish. Fox I believe, in order to win their right-wing audience back, began parroting those same claims. Keep in mind, the filing last week could be the tip of the iceberg. Fox has been fighting tooth and nail to keep a lot of that material under seal, and even the material that was released was heavily redacted. It also is fighting back against the lawsuit by alleging Dominion cherry-picked quotes and took them out of context. Here's their problem. Dominion is suing for $1.6 billion, alleging Fox News had a host of commentators and guests that alleged it was helping in rigging an election for Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez. Now we're talking about Dominion voting systems helping to rig an election that had happened years earlier. Dominion's challenge lies in proving the network acted with malice. Knowing such information was false, but allowed it on the air anyway. That's a high bar, but one that Dominion might just be able to meet. We'll see how things go. Meanwhile, the subject of all this back and forth is facing some problems of his own. A special grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia has released some of its findings into the 2020 election in the Peach State. What little we know doesn't bode well for the former guy. You may remember he importuned the Georgia Secretary of State to find him more than 11,000 votes, which would have turned the election to him in Georgia. The grand jury is tasked with ascertaining if Trump violated election law by solicitation of election fraud. Make no mistake, stakes are high here. The DA who impaneled a special grand jury, Fannie Willis, is not to be trifled with. There's been some speculation about the contents of the grand jury report, given that it's only been excerpted. Yet there are already some, including an opinion piece in the New York Times, that speculate Trump could be indicted in Georgia. If so, he'd be the first former president to be criminally indicted. Given the next presidential election is not too far off, the fallout from an indictment could be seismic. Keep in mind, the former president has announced a run already and an indictment would not prevent him from continuing that run. And we already know if an indictment comes, even if it doesn't come. The fact of the matter is that Donald Trump will say that it's a Democrat Democrat witch hunt. That's what he always says. His supporters would certainly not be too happy either. By contrast, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley might well be delighted. The grand jury has recommended perjury charges be filed against some of the people that testified before it. Though that wouldn't include Trump, it would cause him some embarrassment. Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and attorneys John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani could be in Willis's crosshairs. The unanswered question is whether she'll use a broad brush or cut a narrow path, not looking outside her own home state. Either way, it adds a new uncertain edge, not to Donald, not just, that is, to Donald Trump's situation, but to the Republican presidential sweepstakes. Up next, how to fix Medicare and Social Security. Republicans and Democrats have two drastically different approaches, no surprise there, so who will prevail? This is the intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. There seems to be consensus in Congress that something needs to be done about the two major so-called entitlement programs. And I say so-called entitlement programs because the fact of the matter is that both Social Security and Medicare are paid for in part by the very taxpayers who benefit from them. So I'm not sure entitlement programs are actually the proper terms, but we'll leave it there for now. It should come as no surprise that Democrats and Republicans have wildly differing views on what needs to be done. Democrats generally want to raise taxes and expand benefits. Republicans, on the other hand, want to raise the age benefits are paid as well as reduce them and shrink eligibility. Keep in mind that both programs are popular with both recipients and the general public. Both are also at risk of running out of money in the next one to two decades if changes are not made. Republicans, specifically Senator Rick uh, Rick Scott of Florida, floated a trial balloon last year that would have seen all federal legislation sunset in five years. That would have included Social Security and Medicare, and the idea went over like a lead balloon. Despite GOP leadership backing away, Democrats, including President Joe Biden, are using it like a bludgeon, as well they should have. If you want any proof of that, just go back and take a look at the State of the Union address. Although the dates both programs would become insolvent differ, we've been hearing about both going broke for well over a decade. Congress can solve this easily, by the way, by raising the Social Security ceiling, which currently stands at just over $160,000 a year. In other words, they tax you based on earning up to $160,000. After that, it doesn't go up. So if you make $250,000 a year, you get taxed at the same rate or at, actually at your first $160,000 worth of income. Republicans, as we know, are loath to ask the well-to-do to pay for anything. Instead, they want to cut benefits for both Social Security and Medicare from middle-class recipients. They know this won't go over well, so they try to cloak their proposals, proposals that is, in an effort to pull the wool over the public's eyes. And who would their plans hurt? younger workers, regardless of income, and people of color. People of color depend disproportionately on Social Security and on Medicare. Any cutting benefits hurts them right off the top. No one denies something must be done. My inclination would be to back the proposal put forward by Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. It would extend sovereignty by 75 years. Give nearly all beneficiaries an increase of $200 a month through a revision in the benefit formula and adopt a more generous annual cost of living increase. It would be funded by applying current FICA tax rates, that's the rate that you pay into Social Security, to incomes above $250,000 and with two new taxes on investment income. That's what you might call a progressive proposal. Does it mean it's doomed? Maybe, but it shouldn't be doomed. The fact of the matter is, too many Americans depend on Social Security and Medicare to take care of, on the one hand, their basic income needs, and on the other hand, their basic health needs. And to hang these people, this large number, large swath of the American public, out to dry, which is what I believe Republicans really want... They talk about vouchers. They talk about paying in based on certain other criteria. They talk about anything except their stealth agenda, which is to cut the program. And fact of the matter is, the proposal that Senators Sanders and Warren have put forward are the best way to ensure that both Social Security and Medicare remain solvent for the longer term. And finally, an independent candidate for president has captured the imagination of young people in Nigeria. Can he win? And can the US learn anything about what appeals to young people? This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. Nigeria is Africa's most populous nation. For the past eight years, the country has been run by Mohamedou Buhari, who previously ran the country as a military dictator back in the 1980s. It seems the younger population is seeking a change. They've reportedly lined up behind Peter Obi. He's no kid at 61, but his major opponents are all in their 70s. He's running on what we in the United States would call a third party, known as labor. Obi is promising a new day for young Nigerians, and they're reportedly hearing his message. They've experienced many hardships over the past few years, including kidnappings of elementary and junior high school students, skyrocketing unemployment, and violent responses to protests against police brutality. Sound familiar? Ordinarily, Nigerian elections cause barely a ripple in the United States, save for the Nigerian communities that exist in the country. However, this insurgent candidacy may have a lesson for the American body politic. For the past eight years, the nation has been governed by two men. I'm talking about the United States now, not Nigeria. But the United States has been governed by two men over the age of 70. In American politics, people seeking office tend to speak to the largest cohort of voters. Young people are too often an afterthought, using that kind of triangulation. Right now, assuming Joe Biden runs for re-election, Republicans have the advantage of having at least one younger presidential aspirant. That would be Nikki Haley, because she's announced. Ron DeSantis, everybody thinks, will announce. He's younger as well. The time may not have come yet when American young people decide it is time to elect someone who pays more than lip service to their concerns. It may be time to start paying attention, however. I've always felt that the elders in any community have an obligation to address the concerns of the young. Student loan forgiveness was the one concrete proposal aimed at young people and not even all young people, if you didn't go to college, there's no student loan to forgive. The blowback on student loan forgiveness was such that it never was fully implemented. I get the sense that my generation, and even those that came after mine, you know, the generation X's and the Y's, et cetera, et cetera, and even those that came after the baby boom. See, because the baby boom was a gigantic, gigantic cohort. And the baby boomers are now solidly at Social Security and Medicare age. You see where this is going? The fact of the matter is that the younger generations, the generations that came after mine, are smaller. So that you have fewer and fewer people paying for more and more people. Therein lies the rub with both Social Security and Medicare. But back to Nigeria young people in Nigeria feel put upon. Now, the election's the 25th of February, so we don't know what's gonna happen just yet. But it may be, maybe, a time when young people in Nigeria start to flex their muscles. And here in the United States, my generation, the baby boomers, have been hesitant to pass the torch of power to younger people, to the succeeding generations, plural, not singular. It was true when I was young, and I believe it's true now. Remember that in the 19, well, some of you won't remember, but in the 1960s, there was a generational divide that seems to be very similar to what's going on now, except that the baby boomers were young then, And we're actually a huge cohort of the overall American population. Not so much now. But the fact of the matter is, something needs to be done in America to speak to the young. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, because I'm not a kid. All right, let's be real about this. I am not a child. I'm not a younger person. I'm not a young adult. I'm in that baby boom cohort. So I want to be clear about that. But the fact of the matter is that we need to, in some cases, not all, but in some cases, we need to move out of the way. We need to begin to nurture young people. And I've said before, and I'll say it again, one of the things that my generation fell down on was passing a legacy of struggle onto young people, onto succeeding generations. They've managed to figure out struggle, but we did not give them a legacy of struggle. We did not tell them that struggle for basic rights, for justice, etc. was a noble thing to do. We just never did it. It's time now, as we get into our sunset years, for us to smarten up. Thanks so much for listening to The intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.